I'm Dean Mitchell, and this is KPMG's Forensic Lens, detecting lies, deception, and fraud in the world of business. Big payoffs for big profits. This has for too long been an acceptable way of doing business for a small minority of corporations. When individual deceit develops into large-scale corporate malfeasance, the harm caused spikes dramatically. As business travels offshore, especially into emerging markets, all too often it's met by demands for kickbacks from government officials and shady backroom deals that line the pockets of despots, while literally taking the food off the tables of their struggling citizens. The vast majority of corporations resist these dark deals, but some don't. To help us understand why corporations and the individuals inside them choose this illicit path, we're joined by Cameron Watts, the former Australian Federal Police National Team Leader of Foreign Bribery. Cam, you were previously a federal agent with the Australian Federal Police. What does a day look like investigating corporate bribery and corruption in that space? I think most people would like to think it starts with briefings and very high-level conversations about some of the corporate criminals we're going to go after that day. But in almost every case, it starts with coffee. And I think from your uh, former life in law enforcement, you'd know that that's really the uh, the starting point of any good day. But of course, that's a bit of a flippant response. Look, I think when you're dealing with corporate criminals and when you're dealing from a, an enforcement perspective, your day is really about crunching and, and understanding information intelligence from a perspective of investigating and oversighting investigations where you have millions upon millions of documents, you have extensive spatial maps of the conduct you're trying to identify, you're using AI and machine learning and massive data crunching to understand the evidence you're looking for. It's really a very forensic and comprehensive process. And stepping through the investigation, obviously, toward the end of the investigation, it often ends with a knock on the door from the federal police with a search warrant in hand. How do corporations respond when you turn up on their doorstep? Well, I suppose it depends on the way that you're doing it. I think from my time in the AFP, there were certainly a number of instances where companies self-reported their conduct, which is something that from the AFP perspective when I was there, that was something we were trying to actively encourage companies to undertake. I think in Australia, we're a little hamstrung by the lack of prescriptive legislation around companies being able to do that. We have agreements between the AFP and the Commonwealth DPP in relation to companies' self-reported conduct and how companies doing that might be treated in a judicial process. But there's certainly nothing codified in legislation, as you know, for us, for a company to put their hand up and say, hey, this has occurred, we want to talk about it. So when it comes to how a company these days will deal with things, if they've self-reported to the AFP, typically that process will then be conducted in a very non-adversarial manner. Because, of course, if a company has come forward and said, we think this conduct is underway or it has occurred in the past, they typically will have dealt with somebody like a KPMG in the past and there might have already be a forensic report and it will be a fairly, not benign process, but it will certainly have a level of, I guess, understanding around it from both parties. Where there are instances where intelligence or information is derived from foreign law enforcement or from other sources, and it's an investigation that's conducted without the knowledge of the party that's being investigated, that's very different. So you're right, the sort of 6am knock on the door of the CEO or the CFO or the chairman or chairperson of the board, that can be pretty confronting for people who have lived their life in the corporate world and who rightly or wrongly probably don't have an expectation that something like that may happen to them. 
And so those responses, when it's certainly something that is sprung upon them without their knowledge, it's an intimidating thing, I would imagine, to have a bunch of uniformed armed police enter your property and say, here's a piece of paper which allows us to do certain things. And when that door opens, who often is standing on the other side? What does that corporate criminal look like? Is there a typical crook or is it very different each time? Whilst externally you might look at somebody and they might be, I suppose, rightly or wrongly, typically male, typically 40s to 60s probably, and maybe have a very similar career arc in terms of school, university, whatever part of the corporate realm they they sort of exist in. They might have started somewhere, gone elsewhere and worked their way up. I don't think there is a one personality type, but there's probably not a dissimilar type of person in that they're typically clean skins, so they probably haven't ever had any interaction with law enforcement previously. It might be traffic-related offences or something like that, but that's probably the extent of it. Typically, they're not the criminals you would see on a, a day-to-day in general policing. And before we get to the front door with armed federal agents, obviously a lot of investigations going on. Can you help us understand what the AFP do when they find out about an allegation of bribery corruption? How do they go about getting that information to take it further? Well, like any enforcement agency, the first step there is evaluating that piece of information or intelligence and then trying to corroborate it or trying to ground that in some truth. So if you're able to do that and get more than one source to corroborate certain information through various databases or through other witnesses, what you're going to be looking to do is to understand whether what the conduct is being alleged is actually an offence. Corporate crime, particularly foreign bribery and corruption, can be quite a grey area. There can be legitimate reasons for a company paying payments to a third party, and there can also be defences, certainly within the criminal code in relation to foreign bribery. So I think that once you've established the framework of what the potential offending might be, you then look to build that out. So you're going to then look for other pieces of evidence and information you can find. You're going to be looking at corporate structures. You're going to be looking at bank records. Once you've then started to develop a bigger picture and you have a case theory about what is actually going on, you're then going to start to look at individuals and who, in terms of the conduct that they're undertaking, might be doing something that is is illegal or or criminal. And then once you start to establish what that looks like, you're sort of moving out in concentric circles. You start with a little piece of information, you move it out with a bit more and then a bit more, and almost in a way you're actually developing a bigger target for yourself to aim things at. And so once you've got that big target and you know you're looking at individuals, you might then start to pull certain levers that are available to law enforcement and regulators. So in ASIC's space, for example, that might be an interview that they conduct in relation to the Corporations Act. For the AFP and other law enforcement agencies, for example, that could be a myriad of things. And of course, there's some sensitivity around operational policing methodology. But I think it's fair to say that if as a corporate offender or somebody in the corporate world that is considering or actively doing something that they think or they know is illegal, you're going to be dealing with a very different type of enforcement opposed to the company's lawyer, for example, or an internal investigation. You're going to be dealing with law enforcement agencies that have the power to listen to your phone calls, to monitor your email, to have tracking devices, to have surveillance devices on you and other things related to you and the potential conduct. So I think it's a very different perspective that people need to understand from a corporate perspective if they are involved in or considering being involved in any sort of illegal activity. You raise a really good point, Nick. So I always find it interesting where particularly corporate criminals feel like they can avoid detection by jumping off the email and jumping onto WhatsApp or some other text advice. And 
I'm constantly amazed when they see the brief from the police and there have been telephone intercepts or there have been surveillance devices. I think corporate criminals, particularly executives, are absolutely bamboozled that they've had that type of investigation. Has that been your experience as well? Oh, most definitely. And I think there's a number of specific instances. I probably won't mention them by name, but certainly specific instances where the conduct, when it's presented to the individual, in most cases, if you're interviewing or watching an interview of these people, they're typically in their own environment. They're a CEO or a director or the owner of the company, and they have primacy over everything within their own environment. But once they're in, in an interview room and they're presented with certain things that then, I guess, cascade that primacy down to nothing, you can actually see it sort of fall away in their face when they realise that their status or their power in the workplace doesn't apply. It's really interesting because it is a hard, cold reality that, and it's no exaggeration, that sometimes that results in handcuffs literally going on CFOs or CEOs as they're marched out of their buildings. How do they respond when that happens? That's down to the individual, isn't it? The individual reaction to dealing with stress. I mean, in almost every case, I would suggest that that's the first time that person may have dealt with law enforcement. So if the first time you're dealing with law enforcement isn't, excuse me, driver, can I see your license? Instead, it's you're being arrested for the offence of foreign bribery or money laundering, whatever it might be. That's a very big step up. And look, I haven't been arrested for either of those things, so I'm not quite sure what the actual reaction is personally. But I can imagine if you have crafted your life and your career around being successful, that could only be a very significant junction in your career and your life. And to get to that point, obviously, these offences involve deep deception manipulation. How important or how integral do you think deception is to the types of offences like foreign bribery or money laundering? Look, it's crucial. And I think there's two perspectives there. I think that in the instance where somebody commits the offence of foreign bribery and they have a legitimate belief that what they're doing is not an offence for whatever reason, that's a bit different because you know typically that's transparent. They're open about it. They might, as a company, then self-report it and say, look, we actually We went down this path and we've now realised it was a mistake. So we want to talk about it. Where it is completely conducted in secret, where processes would typically be followed are deviated from, where separate bank accounts become involved, where different commodities might be the transacting commodity. So instead of it being US dollars, it's gold bullion or it's school fees being paid for somebody. Those things are very deliberate and very calculated to deceive. So when you have that kind of innate deception, I think you can only know that your pathway is down the path of committing an illegal or criminal act. And obviously you and I have spent probably more years than we care to remember investigating and and now you and I both preventing foreign bribery. But for people who haven't spent the time, what is foreign bribery? What does it look like? How does it happen? So foreign bribery at its outset, it's the, the offence of gaining an advantage that's not otherwise legitimately due by bribing a foreign public official to influence an outcome. So foreign bribery 101 is Australian company goes overseas, not to tarnish mining in general, but it's a good example because you're typically in countries where there might be governance issues, there might be a, a lack of a rule of law as we know it. And typically what it will be is company X goes overseas and they say, we want to buy the rights to this particular area to mine it. The local politician or mining minister says, that's fine. It's going to cost you 50 grand US and we'll speed the process up. That's foreign bribery. You are obtaining a benefit that's not legitimately due with the uh, intention of achieving an outcome for, for your company. But what it looks like from the perspective of society is a very different one. So 
if you think about breaking news at six o'clock, there's been a terrorist incident somewhere. Breaking news, there's been a child sex ring smashed. Those things, terrible and great when the people brought to justice. But what is at the heart of those offences is actually the victims. So 10 people were killed. These children were saved from this awful outcome in life. There's a focus on the victims. But when you talk about corporate crime, the victims are very rarely in the picture. Now, the one caveat I'll say to that is the, the Hain Royal Commission. I think that brought a lot of those people to life. And then previous things like that, maybe the HIA Royal Commission, where they had you know hundreds of sort of ordinary Australians affected. But typically when it comes to corporate crime around money laundering, bribery and corruption, those victims are nowhere. And you know why? Because they're actually not in our face. Those victims are overseas in countries where, as I said, the rule of law is very lax. And those victims are in places where they actually need, and in a lot of cases, they seek influence from outside actors to help improve their community, their family, their lifestyle. And so when you have bribery in the middle of that, what happens is it completely distorts the playing field. So it makes the playing field not level for anybody. And it means that there's certain individuals along that supply chain that actually get enriched simply because they're in a position of authority. And the people that always miss out are the people at the other end of that that actually need that infrastructure in their town or the jobs in their region. So I really focus on talking about the victims of foreign bribery and corruption. Don't think about the offence. Don't think about your reputation of your company. Don't think about how you have to go through an investigative process. Think about the victims of foreign bribery in the country you've never been to, but as part of your supply chain. To me, that's how you actually engender a real sense of caring about what the issue is. And finally, what's the one bit of advice you'd give to corporations or organisations when when they find out they might have a foreign bribery issue, what are the steps they should take? The, the former AFP federal agent in me says, call us straight away and we'll talk you through it. There is nothing wrong with putting your hand up and saying, we've identified that this person in our company did this, or certainly an example that, that I know from my time in the AFP where a company acquired another company and through their due diligence process, they identified the conduct and they put their hand up straight away and said, look, this is what's going on. We know it's going to come at a price, but we want to be very upfront about it. And those things, ultimately, if you try and get down the path of putting that to the back or you know hiding in the book somewhere, it will come out. And in 10 years time, when something happens, when there's another audit or there's some forensic due diligence that occurs and it comes out, it's going to be 10, 20, 50 times worse 10 years down the track rather than now. Best advice is put your hand up, be honest, own the conduct, because what you're doing is you're sending a signal to your company, to the market, and to everyone else that's going to be involved in this process from solicitors, lawyers, counsel, the AFP, ASIC, whoever might be there, that you understand it's a problem. Because if you don't, at that level, put your hand up and try and stamp out that conduct, you allow corruption to flourish. And if corruption is the fourth biggest economy in the world based on last year's figures, you're going to simply make that a bigger problem for everybody. The former detective in me would probably give you the same answer. The corporate advisor now would say to you, at what point do you put that hand up though? Because we we don't want to run off too early until we know what's gone on and disclose information before we really understand what's happened. So at what point do you put up that hand and go forward to the authorities? If you identify conduct within your company, you need to, if you're a director of the company, clearly you've, you've got responsibilities under the Corporations Act in terms of how you disclose that information to not only the market, but the regulator. I think what you want to do is you want to understand the conduct first, but what you don't want to do is you don't want to be in a situation where everything gets captured within a legal professional privilege process. Because 
in my view, from the AFP, that can lead to some complications when corporates are trying to share information. Corrupt corporations steal not only from the market, but from the communities where they operate. They create a playing field which is far from fair and make it tough for companies who do the right thing and return wealth to the local people and economy to succeed. Colluding corporations can have an equally perverse effect on the market and communities involved. Next episode, we'll look beyond individuals in an organisation to the corporations themselves as we explore the murky world of corporate cartels with the man charged with uncovering them. Rod Sims has been the chair of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, Australia's consumer watchdog, for the past 10 years. We'll delve into price fixing, bid rigging, and other forms of cartel behavior. The first one in to tell us about the cartel will get immunity. Now this is very unusual in all forms of the law, but because cartel behavior is hard to detect, probably 70% of the cartels we're investigating come from immunity applications. If you'd like to know more about how KPMG works with organisations to prevent deception and restore trust, head over to our website, which you can find by searching KPMG Forensic. I'm Dean Mitchell, and this is KPMG's Forensic Lens, and I'll see you next time.